What's going on? This is the Saturday Down South podcast presented to you by Texas Pete. I am Connor O'Gara. Will, Christmas came late for you. Not just Matt House, but all of LSU's on-field defensive staff got canned. That had to be the best possible news that you could have gotten over this this holiday season. Yes, I was I was fired up. And I mean, you know, hate to see a guy like uh, Robert Steeples go. I think he was a really young coach getting his feet under him and he was kind of left holding the bag for some older guys. But everybody else, get out of here. Um, <laughs> I think, you know, it's funny because I was thinking about, you know, I like to kind of look in the mirror and see it's like, you know, it's like, do I, you know, make everything about LSU? It's like, well, if you think about it, LSU has the best offense in the conference and the worst defense and they're replacing two coordinators so <laughs> it really can't be weirder than that and so yeah I mean the way that but I, I will say this I won't spend too much time on it like Brian Kelly the professionalism and the surgical like kind of methodology he used here where he kind of waited for you know the portal to close early signing day was like no hitches and then it was just one big red wedding fear watch throne just everybody dead the whole head of the snake is gone let's start over and like that's so refreshing to me because and LSU fans stayed confused about this, including myself, because we had been gaslit into thinking he was coming back. But obviously, Brian Kelly knows what he's doing and knows that you're not just going to say, hey, I'm going to fire this guy right before early signing period. So, yeah, after it happened, the name's getting leaked. It's like, oh, wow, there was a plan in place for months. And obviously, Brian Kelly was not going to come out and leak it like we used to. Okay, the names that I initially saw from Matt Moscona, who Matt Moscona does great work covering all things LSU, and he's, he's a great follow on Twitter and, and is somebody that's really insightful on these things. When I first saw that initial list that included the likes of DJ Durkin and Bob Diaco, I was like, oh, God, right. this is this is going to be Bo Pelini all over again. And then Brandon Marcello was the one who reported. And we don't know as of this recording, by the way, on Thursday afternoon, what the final decision, what the verdict is going to be to replace Matt House as LSU defensive coordinator. But Brandon Marcello reported that Blake Baker, the Mizzou defensive coordinator that we've said very good things about, the former LSU assistant as well could is expected to be the target for LSU TBD on if that is going to be official, maybe by the time people are listening to this, that's official, but God, that would be a, a massive, massive upgrade. And I, I'll just go on record and say, and we're, we're not going to spend the entire pod talking about this, a lot of things to get to today, but I'll just automatically say that would be an upgrade over the yeah. madhouse experience. Needless to say, Harold Perkins probably going to blitz a couple more times. That happens just a guess. Probably. But if you have an edge rushing problem and you have the best edge rusher at linebacker we've seen in a long time, one would think those would just equal out. But no. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's it's been a really fun season. I think that as we've talked about, if you are one of the teams that are kind of one of the haves, this period's awesome. And it sucks to see the lower teams. You talk about ULL getting raided and stuff like that. Every time a good player comes up, they're starting to get, you know, kind of, kind of, and we'll talk about this a little bit later with Judkins, but it's like, you know, you kind of, Watching all the player movement, watching all the coaches kind of get better jobs, watching all the players like try to apply for like bigger positions in, in ways that we've seen guys do at LSU and from LSU. But it's just it's just interesting to see how how quickly you can get out from under a problem now is the way I'd explain it. Yes, definitely. Uh, the the powers have, have shifted a bit in college football with the way that you can poach and the way that you can do it in the transfer portal. By the way, the big news today is Quinchon Judkins entering the transfer portal. We are going to talk about that with Cole Kubelik in addition to some national championship things, some center snapping the football things a bit from his bowl game, uh, a lot of things to be able to get to with our good friend. Um, and then we're going to close with some lad of the week. And I'm just going to spoil mine already. Um, I've got some things that I want to say about a certain Gene Chizik getting fired from UNC. And I'm not going to, sit here and pretend like Mac Brown was crazy to fire him or anything like that. But just just some thoughts that I wanted to share about 
about Chizik and, and that whole deal. So he is going to be my lad of the week, but stick around for that. Some thoughts that I'll get to uh, a little bit later. But first, well, we talked about some of this the other day, but more thoughts on an SEC list national championship. And not just the simple fact that there's not an SEC team in there, but um, as I mentioned before on this show, it is going to be my first time doing this job where there's not an SEC team in the national championship. And again, like I know I, I've talked about this. If you're a new listener to the show, here's kind of the background. It's very ironic for me personally that the only reason that I am here doing this job, talking to each and every one of you, is because in the first year of the college football playoff, an SEC team missed out on the national championship. My former boss saw what Ohio State did saw the growing interest in not only the Buckeyes with how much offseason momentum they were going to have coming into 2015, but also what Michigan State was doing, then becoming a force. Penn State had James Franklin, looked like it was on the up and up, and Michigan obviously had just brought in Jim Harbaugh. So I was hired in the summer of 2015 to start our Big Ten site, Saturday Tradition, which I recommend for anyone that's in search of some quality Big Ten content. Great, great stuff that we're cranking out over there. But as many of you know, my role shifted right before the start of the 2017 season where they wanted me doing predominantly stuff for SDS instead of just on the Big Ten side with Saturday tradition. I bring that up because this is the end of my ninth season with our company, and it amazes me that it took this long for there to finally be another Big Ten team that has won a college ball playoff game or to have a Big Ten team favored to win a national championship. That's wild. Wild. First time that a non-Ohio State Big Ten team has won a playoff game. First time a non-Oregon Pac-12 team has won a playoff game. Before last weekend, the SEC was the only conference that had multiple teams who had won a playoff game. And that is no longer the case. That's a wild thing to process. We're in year 10 of this system, and it took that long for... Another conference base could be able to say, see, look at our depth. We have multiple teams that can do this. I mentioned this before, but I think there are plenty of people intrigued by this matchup for the simple reason that it doesn't feature two teams south of the Mason-Dixon. And given what we know about the sport in the last two decades, extremely rare, of course, well-documented. So is this an outlier or is the sport actually changing? And this is a sign of things to come because in 2014, when this happened, it wasn't some sign that the SEC sky was was falling. The SEC had a team in the next eight title games after that. And of those 16 national championship participants, 10 were from the SEC. In 1998, when Tennessee got the, the SEC back in the national spotlight, feels like 98, right? Post Peyton Manning. At that time, that was... Very, very much a dry spell for the SEC. The conference only had one national championship participant over the course of the next seven seasons and ended up obviously being a split national championship for LSU along with USC during that 2003 season. A split it's national championship. It is considered a split national championship. I realize I'm talking to an unbiased LSU fan when I say this. It is a split national championship if you go by what the NCAA actually has on their website. That's all I'm saying. Mm -hmm. So we know what happened after 2005. Seven consecutive SEC national champs and four different SEC schools did that. So yeah, when the SEC saw that streak come to an end in 2013, and then the SEC misses the title game entirely in 2014, there were some, including my former boss, who probably thought, hmm, changing of the guard is taking place. In reality, 2014, we know now was the outlier. Maybe 2023 will just be the outlier. 
What I do know is that a couple of things can be true at the same time. As I mentioned before, if five SEC teams start off in the top seven or eight of the AP poll coming into 2024, it's not going to surprise me. I think that's very much on the table. TBD on the whole Ole Miss thing, especially as we're talking about Judkins and the portal. And then Mizzou has some things that they still need to be able to figure out as well to see how much offseason momentum they're going to get. But they're going to be part of that conversation, at least it looks like. Three of the last four national championship participants during the last two years, though, were outside of the top 10 in the talent composite rankings. We've talked about that. Ari Wasserman wrote about how he, at this point, after seeing that, he needs to tweak how he views the stars matter approach. Because mm-hmm. while we would all, I think, if we were starting a team tomorrow, rather have more five stars than two stars, there are just other ways to build a win-now team with the portal. And TCU and Washington have obviously showed us that. Michigan is the outlier. Michigan is the team that didn't have top 10 talent, and it didn't really rely on the portal. Call it culture, call it building from the inside out, whatever you want to call it. Michigan is going to provide hope for so many programs, probably even more programs than Washington. As weird as that might sound, Michigan might be in position to be able to do that because Michigan is the traditional power that talked about getting to this place for so long. And so many people on the outside, myself included, laughed. We scoffed at that. We, we Until they actually had that overtime stop against Alabama, you could have told me, mm, Michigan's just never going to quite get on that level. And now it looks like it is very, very close to happening. And even if they lose the national championship, I would still argue this was getting to that place that they had talked about getting to. They have one shared title since the end of the Harry Truman administration. And yet, like, they did it the throwback way, right? They, they didn't do it the, the modern TCU Washington way with with being able to hit on these guys in the portal and have this right influx of talent with the right scheme in place to be able to make that work. They knocked on the door. They had the offseason mantras about Georgia, blah, 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 all these different things. They sold themselves on being a title or bust team, and then they got there. Whether they have all of this stuff stripped after the Connor Stallions investigation concludes, that's TBD. But for programs like Miami, Nebraska, Tennessee, USC, Penn State, Texas, even Florida, maybe, who I always felt like had a lot of similarities to Michigan. It was kind of ironic that they kept meeting in in non-conference and bowl situations like that. You have a 20th century power that stood up and finally got it done without catching lightning in a bottle. This isn't catching lightning in a bottle. Washington, a little bit more so. And, And that's not to say that they can't have sustained success in Seattle. I do believe that they can because obviously I love Kalen DeBoer. i I said on the next round, if I could take a coach in the future, moving forward, even if they were guaranteed to stay Harbaugh versus DeBoer, I'd probably take DeBoer. Like, he's been that good at his job so far. But the timing of having Grubb running this offense, getting a healthy Penix, having the exact offensive line that loves pass protection and really takes pride in that, on top of all the portal additions, all they have, it's a different model than what Michigan is doing. But the 12-team playoff is all about that word that you love so much that you have made part of the Saturday Down South podcast lexicon. It is vernacular is probably the better way to describe it. Hopium. Hopium. That is that is everything. And I think Michigan just provided a ton of hopium to traditional powers that have been so desperate to get back onto this stage. 
And that's not my way of saying that, oh, college football is better when Team X is good. Everybody listening to this knows I hate that. It sucks. As Josh Pate would say, mm-hmm. that is how you can spot a casual. You can think it's cool to see a program like Michigan or Washington is back in this spot. While also thinking the sport has been pretty darn entertaining with others getting a shot and those not necessarily having a whole lot of success. If you hear that's that like take one, by... That's like one byproduct, like real quick, of like everyone being more informed is that everyone starts talking as if they're like involved in these negotiations. It's like when people, average fans start sounding like TV executives, it's like, brother, why do you care? You're a nebraska fan or, or a ucla fan why are you happy that these two random teams are in it's like because you've been conditioned to say that no actual real diehard fan like if you go talk to like georgia fans it's like yeah i don't know man we got to root for alabama against michigan it's like no i hate them why would i do that and it's like it's it's funny when like you see a diehard fan versus kind of a new age like trying to be cool trying to get the takes off guy because it's like when you talk to real fans you're you're completely right they're not like oh thank god jim harbaugh is in this one you know it's like my team's not in i hate this yeah, my team's not in it, or this game is competitive. It's not competitive. That's yeah. kind of how this this really – Yeah, we, we want to see good football. I, I would love mm-hmm. to see an instant classic on Monday night. I would love to have a game that goes down to the wire in some weird way, just like we saw in the Sugar Bowl. That would be awesome. And I don't care which teams are playing in it. I don't care what type of storylines that we have in this game. If that's going to be the outcome, and if that's what this, this four-team playoff produces in its final year – that's a win for all of us, okay? It, it absolutely is. And I know a lot of people have their rooting interest, and that'll play a part in it. But in terms of getting national attention, that is going to be good, and that is going to definitely be there. But I, if you hear someone say that the title game is so much better without SEC teams in there, know that that's coming from a place of jealousy and not one of sound football mind. That's different, yep. okay? What's undeniable is that both Michigan and Washington – earn the right to play for a title. Or maybe it's deniable if you are really a believer that Michigan cheated its way to be able to get here. And look, I'm not saying that Michigan is just totally innocent and in being, you know, targeted by the NCAA or anything like that. Like, but even if you tell me that Connor Stallions ran this operation that's more intense than we even realize right now and these findings are going to come out, we're all going to take a step back and go, wow. <laughs> Those boys cheated in every possible way. Um, I would still point that to that was at the game that took in that game in person, by the way. There's no ramifications for that. I, I kind of like that he changed up his look, though, that he went shaved head. Who is it? Chase Winovich. It was on his story that, yeah. that that went viral. Like the fact that he, you know, he shaved the goatee, he shaved his head and was just like, yeah, I'm full incognito mode at, at this point. I, I don't know. just like, look, everyone, it's Connor Stallion. Yeah. Like, hey, this he's he is actually here. Uh, but yeah. I, to me, still, like seeing what they did down the stretch without him, you know, against Penn State, against Ohio State, against Bama, they, they earned their spot to be able to get here. Danny Cannell might disagree with that. That's fine. He's clearly unbiased about all of this. I respect his unbiased opinion. Speaking of biased, Georgia fans, just hear me out here. I, I love most okay. of you. I love most of the Georgia fans. I, I really do. Okay. But, but I'm going to be texting with some of them on Monday night. I'm sure. Mm-hmm. Love texting with my Georgia friends. Just a quick aside, quick aside. Sometimes I take a bit to respond to texts while games are going on and it's not personal. I promise if you're of listening course. to this and you're one of those people, Will, yourself included. Okay. Like we, we text during yeah. games and stuff. We talk about what we're, what we're going to be talking about on the pod or sometimes it's not related to that, whatever the case may be. But I, I take a bit sometimes during games that, that I'm like locked into and it's it's not personal. It's just that I'm usually like taking notes. I'm writing columns. 
usually in Gchat with my editor, trying to figure out ideas and stuff, maybe changing a diaper here and there. I, I don't know. Mm -hmm. um, on top of trying to stay all over Twitter, X, whatever you want to call it, making sure I don't miss anything, all while trying to process something that I'm watching to be able to come on these airwaves and talk about interesting things instead of just telling you what you just saw and not making any sort of sense of it. That is why you're listening to us right now. But back to Georgia fans. If at any point, if at any point you're watching this national championship between Michigan and Washington, and you feel the urge to text me that Georgia would have blown out both of these teams, just take a breath, take a breath. Know that you're going to get one of two things that's going to happen to you with a response. I'm either going to just not respond to you altogether, or you will get a delayed eye roll emoji from me. That's guaranteed. Guaranteed. Mm -hmm. Do I think Georgia could have won a national championship in an alternate universe? Yes. No doubt. Six like 17 could have won a title. Georgia's one of them. No doubt about it. Do I think we should assume that Georgia would have crushed a pair of 14-0 and teams that have answered the bell every single week? I don't. I don't. And if you're going to play the results, and if Michigan goes up two touchdowns, say like, oh, we could have beat this Michigan team. Or alternatively, if Washington then comes out and beats Michigan, and you're like, oh, hey, see, we could have beat this team, or we could have beat both these teams. Mm -mm. And before you tell me, but Connor, the spread, Georgia would have been favored to beat all of them. I, I don't you know. If you were listening to the podcast at this point, and you're talking about the spread like that, you are not listening. Like, you might be hearing us, or you might be listening, but you're not hearing us. Yes. I, look, I'll, we need to continue to say it. Spreads do not predict the outcomes. They try to make sure sports books make money no matter who, who wins. That, that's how this works. That's, that's how Vegas works. That's how gambling works. Shameless plug, go listen to Betting the Bulls where we talk about that concept as well. You can feel jaded as a Georgia fan. I'm not telling you that. I'm, I'm not telling you that you should watch this game and just be like, oh, yeah, no what ifs whatsoever. I, okay, I'm not, I'm not dumb enough to think that's the case. Just don't give me this belief, this certainty that the dogs would have dominated both of these teams, especially after we watched Michigan bully Alabama, the same Alabama team that beat Georgia fair and square and held the lead for the final 43 minutes of that football game on a neutral site. Georgia fans, I love you. I love you. Okay. Just know that, know that, but just don't come at me with that. I don't want to hear that. I don't want to hear that on Monday night. I'll hear, I'll hear a lot of, I'll hear a lot of takes. I'll be a shoulder to cry on. I get it. It sucks to go to go 12 and one to have the year that you had 12 and one. 13-1, 13-1, and have the year that you had, but <clears throat> I'm not going to be I'm not going to be your guy for that. There are, there are message boards that you can hop on, different forums than your boy over here. Okay, just wanted to get that out there. I don't. Yeah, and, and as a as a hater, I can quickly pick up that Georgia fans might say, "Oh well, Alabama didn't beat us fair and square. There was a catch there, and then you could just simply retort, "Well, Michigan then beat that team." So if they had the referees and God on their side, even more impressive than Michigan has beaten them. Um, so yeah, I think I think that's I, I think you're right there. And like you know, I it's this last year of the college football playoff has been like I talked about the take economy, just getting NFLized, and I just hate it so much because every game is oh this team should have made it and this one shouldn't because this team lost. Oh Michael Penix should win the Heisman over Jordan over Jane Daniels because he's better and and it's like bro, we all were here in the same timeline and we all agreed on these things and then now you're literally using hindsight to just get clicks and get your name out there and like i get it it's how the game works sometimes but it's like man like 
you're making the game worse. Like, it's like, I feel like an old head at this point as I'm you know, getting 20 years into being a college football fan. It's like, you're making the game worse. You're making this more confusing for other fans when you say, oh, we beat FSU by 60 points as if they were a full strength, like, you know what I'm saying, almost four seed. And it's like, bro, you know that's not true. Like, you well, know that Bama, you could have and should have been there. But you, sh- you, we all picked you to beat Bama and you didn't. And that's it. Yes. Do not watch this national championship with hindsight. Do not try and, and and play the results and go back and try and change outcomes based on the way that things play out. Just, just don't do it. And when I see Joel Klatt try and tell me that Michael Penix Jr. should have been more seriously considered for the Heisman, even though it was the closest final vote that we've had in five years, and Jaden Daniels won the award because he padded his stats against Georgia State and against an FCS team. When I, when I see that, it drives me up a be nice wall. Be Florida. <laughs> they're not an fcs team connor come on um look don't don't look at it through this lens and uh our our guy um derek peterson is running is he has a column that's coming out on saturday road i believe maybe by the time people are listening to this it's already out or i think it's coming out sunday actually it might be over the weekend but it's it's a, a question about whether or not we should be voting on the heisman trophy before the bowl games or whether or not that process should be moved back. Something that's been talked about a lot. And Penix is a really interesting case because obviously if we're just even voting after the semifinal games, Michael Penix wins the award. Like there's, there's no yep. question about it. How much should that be, that, that be taken into account, but using this, Oh, Hey, well look what happened in this bowl game and then use it to justify things. When we had a certain set of parameters, a certain set of data at the time when a decision was made, I hate that. I hate that so much. If you've ever listened to one of our debates down south podcasts that we were doing during the pandemic, I always, always, always spoke out against that. And it's a big, big source of frustration when people try and do that. So don't do it with this game. Don't do it with this matchup. Try and watch this game and just root for a good game. I know that's a very, I I do that all the time because that, that is what my mindset is on Saturday. I prefer to not look like a total idiot. When I come on here and tell you, I think this is how this is going to play out. I think this guy's going to have a really big game. Would I like my opinions to come true? Yes. But ultimately, do I want to be entertained as I'm sitting there on my butt on my couch for three and a half hours watching this? Yes. Try and watch the national championship without an SEC team and just root root for everyone to have fun. Root for everyone to have fun. Or if you're betting, again, listen to betting the Bulls, root for your bets, stuff like that. I don't think this is a blowout, though. I don't think it's a blowout. I think it's Michigan's year. And that's why I think Michigan ends up winning this game after getting over the Bama hurdle, which I think that was everything. I think that was everything for that program. You saw the way that they celebrated. Maybe we're going to look back and say that was that was Michigan Super Bowl and just winning that game was was all that, that they they set out to do and they weren't prepared to win a national championship. That that world does exist. It absolutely does. I don't think Michigan will play a perfect game against Washington. I actually think Washington will have a backdoor cover and this ends up being a 20-24 game. But I do think the Dylan Johnson injury, the Mississippi State transfer running back, I think that's going to loom large. He is expected to play in this one. But I wonder how they're going to look when it gets close, if they get to that you know, inside the 10 goal-to-go situations when they need seven and they're getting three. Not sure that you want to be one-dimensional against this Michigan defense that has just been so freaking good. And it's amazing that it's so freaking good with Jesse Minner, a former Vandy assistant two years ago on Clark Lee's staff has now become one of the best assistants in all of college football it's wild how this sport changes it truly is um clearly that bandy defense um was in better shape with him than than without him um which is just a weird thing to be able to say but 
Um, yeah, I, I think I think even though Washington handled that Texas interior defensive line really, really well, I, I think there could be spots where Michigan disguises blitzes just as they did against Bama, and they're able to 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 get to Michael Penix Jr. But if Washington wins, we will look back and say that the Huskies were such a unique matchup for Michigan. They really hadn't seen anything like that passing attack all year. I know I talked about that with Milrow, but it's Milrow and, and Penix are wildly different players in what they do and what they do at their absolute best. But I think we get some big time Blake Corum moments. Not really bold saying that. I think McCarthy hits on some of the some of those chunk plays in the passing game where Washington has been exposed on the back end a bit. And I think Michigan is the undisputed national champ for the first time since 1948, which will. I've got a fun fact about 1948 Michigan. You know I do. Oh, gosh. What is it? (laughs) Michigan in 1948 forced 32 turnovers and allowed a total of 44 points. They picked off 21 passes in nine games. Huh. Okay. (laughs) Which is similar. If you do an interception for every pass attempt that they probably faced, those numbers are insane. No wonder nobody wanted to throw the football back then. My God, it was just a walk. Like that that old black and white video that always goes viral. It's like, this is the worst pass ever attempted in professional football. It's just a... Even worse than the Dr. Pepper challenge, just this two-handed chest pass that picked off at the goal line. It's so, so that's the history that's at stake here. I, I love I love the Michigan wealth of knowledge you have from covering them for it's such a like a bonus skill here. Cause like, yeah, that's we all you see all the fake PR about like a winningest program of all time, Bros Wolves. No, this is actually like a, the biggest one of the biggest games in Michigan history because they really have Easily. not won anything in a long, long time. No, easily. And look, I, plenty of people remember glory days with Michigan and they they remember 97 really, really well. I was still a little bit young to kind of process what that meant for Michigan. But this is mm-hmm. this is just different. And it's different because of the era that we're talking about. You brought up that point uh, about the Kirby versus Saban debate and how we view national championships now, knowing what it takes to be able to get there. This 1948 Michigan team went nine and oh, they went nine and oh. They, like this team could be 15 and 0 by the time that yep. we're talking next Tuesday and they'd be the fourth team to ever do that. So it's a very, very different set of circumstances now. With a third that, many ter- th- that amount of turnovers though. So are they the greatest Michigan team ever? No, they're um, batters, you know, they, I, I, Michigan didn't, I don't know how many turnovers this Michigan team has forced. I don't think it was 32, but it's gotta be close to it. Right. Yeah. yeah. Gotta be close to it. Not nine games though. That's the difference. Yeah. Should be a good I one. I'm excited. On, I, I think you hit on something um, earlier that's very fascinating um, for me. So, of course, I'm going to go where we all expected me to go. The Electoral College. So if you think about it like this, you made a point, you made a point that, you know, Michigan's rise is more is, is kind of more inspiring or replicable. Well, that takes me back to one of the most interesting questions for college football for me. I promise this is going somewhere. Right. So college football actually might secretly be a lot more like the NBA than we all think it is, right? And what that means is there are teams at the top who control a lot of the fandom, right? Like it or not. So Celtics, Lakers, you know, you got Notre Dame, Alabama, Ohio State, USC, whatever. The teams that people say the sport is good when they're good, there are still these power broker teams, right? Now, this goes into an age-old question of, uh, when I talk about the Electoral College, land doesn't vote, right? So you could look at the, let's say, 100 teams that could find more, um, refuge in what Washington is doing. Okay. But then you start asking yourself, well, if you added up the 30 or so teams, 35 teams that could follow Michigan's path, 
is that more people? And that's a really good question because let me break it down like this. Michigan did exactly what a big team with money should do, minus some portal stuff, right? Um, they hired the big name coach who was an alum, right? They did what, you know, Nebraska tried to do with Scott Frost. They they went out and got their uh, Michigan man, right? Jim Harbaugh. Messiah. They stole him away from the NFL. They, what's up? Uh, Messiah, we call it. Yeah, they're Michigander Messiah. There you go. So mm-hmm. they got him from the NFL ranks. You know what I'm saying? And they built that from the ground up. And and I will say, this is two teams that are not homogenous. They are not off of the Kirby, Saban, you know, Ryan Day, Lincoln Riley coaching trio we see all the time, right? These are, the Jim Harbaugh DNA is made of steel wool. Did you see Jim Harbaugh's dad the other day? He is an interesting fellow. An <laughs> interesting fellow to cultivate the children that he has. I'll say that. He is a... Uh, I, I, I perfectly understand why those two grew up the way that they did when you kind yep. of realize who their dad is. Yeah. Yep. And so point there is the Harbaugh's are doing Harbaugh stuff. They don't really particularly care what the cool thing is in coaching. They don't care. He drinks milk and eats steaks. His brother seems to be the chill one, but both pretty, pretty regimented. And their dad is all like, it all makes sense, right? So Jim Harbaugh is not blowing in the winds of college football. They hired a figurehead. They hired their messiah and it worked out for them. He brought in first class staff. They have first class facilities. The NIL stuff, yeah, they're not really spending like some people, but they have it. They have, they're not wanting, right? So that's one way to build a program. You can say we built it. I hate to say the clean way because that's not really true about Michigan, but they built it from the ground up. Michigan man, da, 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 the traditional right? way, the the more traditional, the traditional way. Traditional there, way. There are not a lot of modern elements to the way that they have built things up, and you could say like, oh, they do certain modern things in their offense. I, I would argue that it's still a little bit more traditional in, in the way that they they even approach that. But yes, it is is very much an, a little more of an old fashioned style to be able to, to get to this place than what we have seen from a lot of other programs. Yeah. One, 100%. But I do think you hit on something good there, which is that if that can be Michigan, why can't it be Nebraska, Tennessee, you know, all these uh, USC, I guess they're, we're all so on Lincoln Riley now, but that's what they did as well. They brought in this figurehead each of those guys kind of brought in and Tennessee is not so much because Hypel is a little bit more of like an underrated hire, but most of those teams will bring in these figureheads over and over again, Jimbo Fisher at A&M. They'll bring these guys in and Jim Harbaugh is your shining example of maybe if you win the press conference, maybe if you get the big guy, it can work out for you. And there are enough of those teams. There's enough money. There's enough of those fans to where that does help a ton of people. Um, but then, you know, you look at Washington and even between those two, there's a pretty big talent composite rank ranking you know shift and i've been talking about it you know forever DeBoer, ryan grubb two guys that were just you know sioux falls high school no coaching tree to speak of came out of the you know the mist like white walkers and just started beating the mess out of everybody and they're beating dan landing and he's from the kirby smart tree and you know they're beating sarkeesian who's been everywhere usc coach blue chip guy with all this talent and that's the scariest team in the world to be because they've already seen <laughs> the top of everything. They've already, and they, they, they like who they like. Um, so that being said, I, I think that that is also very exciting because it encourages the teams that can't get the figurehead guy to go, you know what, let's go completely off the board. Then let's not hire Sean McVay's cousin's uncle's sister. Let's go find someone who we've never seen before and try it out. And to me, that's a lot of the issue with the NFL right now is that a lot of the coaching trees are so similar. You have like Andy Reid, Sean McVay. It's kind of it. There's a couple other guys spread out. Pete Carmichael does whatever he wants. He's not part of a coaching tree. Um, the Bears don't have the same deal. And Easy. so, but if, if you're if, if you're gonna hire one of those guys, you're gonna get one of those trees. And that's what it's kind of felt like with all these similar SEC title teams winning. 
Well, now these teams can both sell not only recruits, as we always talk about, but also other programs. Hey, you know, uh, Malachi Nelson, you can come be our Michael Penix Jr. Come on, let's go. Let's figure this out. And so point being, you know, none of these guys, like like Michael Penix Jr. rating, people didn't think he was a bum. People thought he couldn't stay healthy. That just panned out for them, right? And so point being, like, you can bet on these depreciated assets and you can get guys in and 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 believe in them and get them believing in themselves and and actually win big football games against the likes of Alabama and Texas, two big money teams, SEC bloodlines, blue chip, we got all that. And so I don't I'm not gonna sit here and be one of the hot take guys and, and say, oh, this is you know, the super team era is dead, recruiting doesn't matter now. But I will say that it requires a lot more nuance, which we have less of than ever, to evaluate and say, hey, if Michael Penix stays healthy, he's like kind of Right there, and I've never said a negative word about Michael Penix. I love that guy. I'm not going to dump, like, say, oh, he's, you know, there's no gene. No, no, no. This guy is for that team exactly what they need. And so I, I will, you know, follow all that gobbledygook with a, with a prediction, which is I actually like Washington in this one. I think that the quarterback difference is stark. And I think that whenever you have a guy who can go against Texas and those, those defensive backs and, and, and what they've been able to do and the talent they have in Sarkeesian and feeling like Texas is a year, you know, Texas is back, all that different stuff. I, I think that that momentum is just as much, if not more than moment, than Michigan's, if you think about it, because Michigan just did more losing. It's not like they, you know, Texas felt like, oh my gosh, you have this quarterback, you have Quinn Ewers, you have all these different. So point being, I think that, you know, McCarthy is good and I'm not going to dump on him other offense, but I think that you saw a pretty limited quarterback in Jalen Milrow. I think that that's just what it is. I think that they had a chance to ice the game numerous times. And I think that they were able to expose those weaknesses. And I don't think Michael Penix has weaknesses like that. In that game, he was moving around like it was 2020. He was he was using his legs. That was the one thing he had kind of gone away from. So I think that an empty the tank game for Michael uh, Penix could be enough to offset all that extra stuff going Michigan's way. Because McCarthy was good in that game. Again, I'm not taking away like that we all made fun of the meditation thing, but it appeared to work. He didn't look rattled. He kept making the plays. But I think those plays are a lot more routine for Michael Penix. I think that Romadunze is an awesome receiver. I think that at the top, they actually have better talent, just not throughout the roster. And you're right. It's all about protection. I mean, they got after Alabama, whose offensive line just did not get better. We thought they did, but they were they were cooked against Michigan. Um, but I, I think that, like, we know they have to solve for that pass rush, and they're going to see that tape against Alabama and, and know to prepare for that. But, yeah, I think it's going to be a fascinating game because we've never seen two teams like this, let alone watching them play each other. It's kind of crazy how different Washington and Bama are from a, a prep mm-hmm. standpoint if you're Michigan in terms of what you're looking at, what you're going to have to defend against, what you feel like you can do well on the offensive side of the ball, and and how that approach is going to be. I mean, they are – I don't want to say they're complete inverses of each other, but, man, there are not a lot of similarities between Washington and Bama. And so if Michigan comes out and asserts its will and does what Michigan has really done all year – and look like the better team every single time it has stepped on the field, then to me, it would be a testament to to what Harbaugh has built to, to get to this place. And I, I, I just think, I think that that can still happen. I, I really do. Now I have, I feel like I've been more pro Washington than anti Washington. I named them one of my playoff teams coming into this year. Didn't think they would get to a national championship, thought that they would lose in the semifinal dubbed them America's team. When I stripped, Utah that title for keeping us in the dark about the Cam Rising injury and having a pig farmer out there at quarterback. And I gave it to Washington. I said, "This is America's team. This is who you can root for." I bet America is rooting for Washington. I, I bet they are because 
it's kind of fun to see these teams sort of pop up. And if there's a trend that I think we need to be open to, it's the idea that we can have teams like this that pop off, that get the right combination of talent, that have coaches that aren't looking from within and can actually look out and say, well, I know that we need to address this area on our roster, that area, and boom, we're going to plug in this. This guy's going to fit into our system. I know I've seen him have college reps. I'm not just hoping that this four-star guy who's in year two or year three is going to perfectly fit into our offense when he hasn't been live. And it's just totally different from an evaluation standpoint. And so we need to, and I'm saying we, because me personally, I need to be more open to that idea that that team can get to a national championship on this stage. Even though I do think that it's going to be tougher than ever to win a title in the 12-team playoff era with all of those quality teams you have to beat to get to the top of the college football mountain, I still think that it's also true that you can find the right combination of talent, that you can be at a different place, that you can acquire that in ways that are a bit more creative than what we were talking about in the past. And it's going to be interesting. And I know people have brought this up as well. Like, hey, it's not just going to be Alabama, Georgia, Ohio State winning every single national championship in the 12-team playoff era. And we're seeing that these teams can have that type of success. And hopefully, as you brought up the, the point with DeBoer, I, I love when we recognize new things that are possible with head coaches. And I think for a variety of reasons, we are not open-minded enough when it comes mm-hmm. to that during the hiring process. I think I'm guilty of that as well. I tend to look at certain things, even as we were talking about the LSU defensive coordinator search and what I, I kind of was looking for. I was like, Zach Harnett, Jim Leonard. Like, that's, that's it. I should have included Blake Baker on my initial list just because I loved the job that he has done at Mizzou and was more thinking that, all right, he's kind of locked in. Maybe they're not going to be able to poach him as well, but you get what I'm saying. Like there needs to be more ways to look at how to build a winner. And I think Washington has hopefully shown us that in Michigan too. Michigan has definitely shown us that there is a different way to skin a cat. I don't know who these sickos are that are skinning cats. Can't say that I've ever met one. If I did, I would say that's what you do for a living. You skin cats. It's got kind of suck. I'd get awfully sick of that skinning cats, but that's the place that we're at in college football. Maybe it's healthy. Maybe as we talk about this Judkins thing, it's not healthy. The place that we're at in a variety of ways. And that's why we talk so much about fixing the sport, but I do think that all eyes will be on this national championship. I'm not a ratings guy. I don't give a crap about that. Like to me, that is just such an overblown thing that people use to push narratives. But I do think this game will have a lot of people watching And also in part because you've got a big market team, technically, Washington, Seattle, and also a team, Michigan, that has a wildly wildly spread out alumni base all over the country. Do me a favor, though. Will, you or anybody listening to this, if you see someone in the next few days, or even after the national championship as well, if you see someone wearing any singular piece of Michigan gear, apparel, whatever you want to call it, just go up to them and say, I can't see that second piece of Michigan apparel you're wearing, but you've got on Michigan socks or underwear right now, right? You do. You know, I've seen so many of those out in the wild, Will, lately. Mm-hmm. Grocery store, Michigan hat, Michigan shirt. Michigan shorts, Michigan shirt. Michigan jersey, Michigan hat. The com- Why Michigan, of all fan bases, leads the country in multiple pieces of representation is beyond me. Like, you realize if you're just wearing a Michigan hat, I'm not going to ID you and say, name three players. I'm not going to do that. I'm not. But they are under the impression that everywhere they go, they need to be 
seen as a Michigan fan. I promise you, I'm never, I, I won't question you, Michigan fans. I won't. I, I will know. I will know. And you've already told me. Yeah, I, that's actually a, a fashion tip that you gave me that I've adhered to. Is you really just need one logo? I think just it one. comes from like I think it comes from maternity life. I just never heard. No one's happy now to stop wearing all these logos. But you can see right now I have one piece of Louisiana related gear on, but I'm not like all purple like I was when I was 14. And so point being, like I, uh, I that actually ties into my next point, which is that I'm so conflicted about how I feel about Michigan because at the end of the day, I want to believe in this underdog story, like who got it better than us. And the dad said that on time in the same cadence. So, so crazy. And like, you want to root for them and think, Oh, you know, they did build it the right way. They got their, their chosen son to come home. But at the same time, it's like, I, I want to be clear. I'm not jumping on Michigan fans here, but there is like a little bit of that. Like every person in sports media, kind of like Northwestern will let you know they went to Michigan. It's always da 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 and two pieces of gear, all that. And at the same time, it's like, you know, the, the obvious like kind of stallions cheating situation, if that was not going on, I probably would have been all for Michigan beating Alabama. I would be probably slightly pulling for them. In the, well, no, I love those Huskies. Never mind. But I would be a lot. It would be a lot more of a win-win. But I'm, I'm looking at it now. It's like, you know, all of that, all of that cloud, all the stuff they've done with the field, all the numerous issues have caused me to to not kind of want them to win because we don't know what's going to happen from here. And I, I don't want the sport to get certainty as it gets more. Uh, convoluted and say, oh, well, we have a playoff, but if these wins get taken out, then none of this really happened. Um, because that's one that does, it's not like Reggie Bush. It's one that does seem to actually really be systemic and a problem. So it's just, it's just interesting. It's so interesting because like they've turned it into like this mantra and it's like, dude, I want to believe in that, but it's like, he just keeps getting asked about it. keeps trying to make it seem like it's not that big of a deal. It's like, well, it was all Ohio State's fault. Like that quote that came out the other the day. The J.J. McCarthy it's thing. Just, yeah. Yeah. Yep. 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 And it's like, bro, like it's, I know it's hard to speak on it when you're here and there's not, not a right way to handle it, but to just point the finger and be like, well, the reason we got better is because Ohio State was stealing our signs and we just had to step it up. We had to compete. And it's like, all right, man. So yeah, point being like, I just wish they had more awareness. Here we go. I wish they had more awareness if they had more awareness. And I think that's where all this comes together. The two pieces of gear, the quotes, all this stuff. If you just had more awareness and you were like, Hey, this is kind of messed up. I wish we didn't do this. However, we are here. I do think we're better than Washington. Let's just see how it goes versus bet. The world's out to get us. It's a conspiracy. QAnon. It's like, no, dude, you get why we hate you, right? It's not hard. Like, I do think every fan base would, would take the Michigan approach. I, 100%. I do. 100%. It, it just frustrates us on the outside that they are so steadfast about mm-hmm. being the victim in, in this case and being part of some sort of witch hunt, which we know that for those who are watching this, it's not as if Michigan has been singled out. Like if you're doing something like that, you've been egregious not to go down this road again, that we've been down many times on the show, but yeah, there, there is something about it that because it's Michigan that's in this spot, it's wildly different. If we were talking about Kansas playing in a national championship and if Kansas had embraced that role, yes, we would have a much different outlook. It would not I actually add love that. That's a really good point. Yeah. I would support that. If that became Kansas's new identity, yeah, we cheat and it's us against the world. I'd be like, no, 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 Kansas, like I'm on your side. I'm not on the world side with this. I kind of support you and embracing this. There's there's something to be said for it. But because it's Michigan, it does it does feel different and the certain bravado that is associated with and the fact that it's coming from the mouth of Harbaugh and from a team that up until this point hadn't been there just yet. And they have finally gotten to a place where they are doing it. And you know, maybe this national championship will be stripped. Maybe it won't be stripped. I don't know. I do know that Monday night should be a really good game, despite the fact that there are not two SEC teams. 
playing in it like we have seen oftentimes in the playoff era or just one SEC team. Yeah. All right. Um, any other thoughts on that before we kick it to Cole? No, yeah, I think it's it. I, I think this is a great way to end this poll season. You know, it's like a, funny that like all these stats because it's 10 year period, you know, TCU, the only university from Texas to win a playoff game. Pretty crazy. And it's just such a weird little window into like, you know, the time that we have been the most involved in college football, just because we've been adults and able to, you know, make a career off of it has been this wild zany 10 year period that we'll be able to tell our kids. We'll be able to tell Claire about that one day and say, yeah, like, you know, most of it, like a hundred years of it was kind of like this, but then I really got it in this really weird, funny period. And now it's going to hopefully be like this other version for a while. So, yeah, I think it's a very fitting end. You know, undefeated FSU getting left out, all the all the takes coming out. It's like watching kind of the building like or like the, the building get destroyed, not burned down, but like get imploded. And you're like, dang, look at all the memories I had in there. All right. Good thing you kind of got condemned because I'm out of here. <laughs> Claire will only know this 12 team playoff. Basically, yep. she was alive for this season. She watched plenty of ball. She loves watching ball. You, you kidding She's me? Like, ball knower. I've been saying it. She she is like you should hear her takes in a given Saturday like the stuff that mm-hmm. she spews I don't even have to come up with original ideas anymore she is that good it's it's, it's all just Claire writing your articles for you like ChatGPT yeah I'll take a pic of it one day but uh, her typing skills she can't speak yet but her typing skills are second to none she has a master in communications already all right let's get to Cole Cole was uh, he was there for the Sugar Bowl he has been really really busy during bowl season. Not sure when the man sleeps, but always great to catch up with him. So here's Cole. Not excited to be joined by a very special guest. It is Cole Kublik. Cole, uh, a couple hours before we hopped on, found out that Quinchon Judkins was in the portal. What was your immediate reaction seeing that as somebody that's, I feel like once a week you have a Judkins clip of him just making somebody look absolutely silly in space. How big of a loss would this be? for Ole Miss if he doesn't stay in Oxford? Um, Honestly, I don't think it's a, a massive loss for the team and maybe what they're capable of. And we can talk about running backs in the NFL, how they've been devalued a little bit, and you know, obviously the money that they make. I do think he is a very unique talent. I think he's a special player. But I think running back becomes more valuable the less you have everywhere else. So if you don't have a go-to receiver or tight end or mobile quarterback, running back becomes that much more important and probably going to have more chances to be more successful. Uh, Two years ago, I thought they won games because of him. I mean, you watched games like I did. How many games do you think that Ole Miss won because of Quinshawn Judkins this year? Mm. See, that's tough because there were so many tough moments in the first part of the season where you're just like, the running lanes aren't there. He doesn't look 100% healthy. It's probably a combination yep. of both. We talked about that when you came on. I don't know that they won more than one or two games because of him. I, like he was that. huge in the LSU game, but there were a lot yes. of other guys that were also big in that game. Um, he had some big runs in the Auburn game, but I still stand by. Lane shut that thing down pretty early, and they just knew that Auburn really wasn't going to be able to score. So you're almost playing a different style game there. Uh, had some great runs in the Mississippi State game. I don't think they won the game because of him. So, um, you know, when Deuce McAllister was at Ole Miss, I think because they didn't have near as much around him, sometimes they did, sometimes they didn't. I feel like they won games because of him. Now, he also returned punts and was dynamic there, and he was the guy that they would just ride. Um, You know, we could go to a lot of different backs across the Southeastern Conference for a long period of time, whether it was – 
you know, Rudy Johnson with me when I was at Auburn. Like we, Rudy, we won games because of Rudy. Like Mississippi State won games because of James Johnson. Like LSU won games because of Kevin Falk. We, there's a laundry, Lattimore, South Carolina. There's a lot of games they don't win if he's not playing. And because of what this offense is and how it operates, I just don't know if I look at it as, well, this is a definite extra one to three losses because he's going to be gone. Now, would you love to have him? Yes, because he is different than than I think right now any other back in college football. I think when he gets going, he's that dynamic. But this is also an offense that doesn't have to rely on a running back to make them go. There are a lot of other pieces of how they operate that can make them successful. Tight ends, receivers, Jackson Dart's ability to run, design runs, tempo, pace, quick throws. Receivers can turn those into explosive plays. It's, and we know Lane's going to challenge you down the field. So I hate saying it because he is a special player. But this is one that I think Ole Miss is probably just going to walk away from and say, we can allocate that money for other positions, other players. And we love you. We'd love to have you. Well, I'm sure they put something nice together for him. But if he wants something, you know, two to three times that, then is it worth it, honestly? And and I'll be proud of Ole Miss if they did walk away. Because, you know, I, I, I think where where you really – are surprised about this Connor is the legacy portion of it because he comes back and he he's tied right now with Deuce McAllister for most hundred yard rushing games all time. First hundred yard rusher in a bowl game, I think since 2010, he's the only back to have back to back. I think 15 yard rushing touchdown seasons in the history of the school. He comes back and has another year. Like he's had, you could legitimately talk about retiring his number, building a statue. I mean, he gets him a playoff berth next year. You know, he's getting the Vince Young treatment where he's at the games and he's hanging out and he does something for the school. You don't really know what it is, but he's around and he's shaking hands with people and he's going to alumni functions. And like, he, like he's good. He's set for life. And now, now what, now what will it be? If he goes and plays it and I don't, I don't have, I have no information. If he goes and plays at Colorado, what's that going to do for, um, it, okay. You get a couple extra bucks. And maybe have a nice season. I don't think I don't think there's any other place he could go that's going to improve his NFL stock. I mean, he's asked to pick up blitzes. I mean, he he protects against against pressures and he runs counter, power, toss, inside, outside zone. Like there's no runs he's gonna get to the NFL and say, Oh man, this guy doesn't have film of doing this, or we're gonna have to teach him this technique. That's not a real thing. So there's nowhere he can go that's going to increase his NFL stock. They throw him the football. So I don't, I don't think that's going to really change. So this is one of those unique situations that it's a player that the fans love and probably watch, really enjoy watching. But his legacy might end up being what's damaged more than anything else that happens with this entire move. It's a really unique situation with a lot of layers to it. And you talk about the the surroundings. I think he ended up having more pass protection snaps than any SEC running back. So while there might be And he's good at it, by the way. Like, he doesn't shy away from it. He got run over once in the bowl game, but, like, that doesn't really happen to him often. I mean, he's I've seen him him put some people on their ass, and, like, he's not afraid of the contact at all. Not afraid to square a guy up that's 50, 60 pounds heavier than he is. Like, he's he's, he enjoys it. And I actually asked him about it, and he was like, no, I like it. I I like the contact. And you can tell. So it's not just that they make him do it. It's that he excels in it the majority of the time. Yeah, and it's interesting because so much of the conversation with Trevor Etienne was 
centered around what's what's he doing in pass protection billy napier wants him to do this and that and whatever and like that's just not necessarily something that he wants to get hung up on but with with judkins you look at his situation and say well why would you go anywhere else this is a scheme that is built for your skill set it is allowed you to thrive and have these two years that you've had and i think there's a difference between saying he's a special player which you've said and saying oh well he's just a system back and a lot of people if another running back steps in and does what he is you know what puts up similar numbers they're going to say oh well see you didn't need judkins and there is something to be said for it if he's not going to improve your win total by two games and especially with one year left essentially before you can go off to the nfl does do you get that guaranteed money as a running back knowing that it's different than any other position it's not like you're right. a tight end or something like that. And so, yeah, it, it is a really complicated situation breakdown. But Lane is the guy who said two years ago, why doesn't Bryce Young go in the portal? Why doesn't Bryce Young just try and get as much money as he possibly can and just say, screw it, I'm just going to get whatever I can. And now his guy, Judkins, is doing something that essentially he threw yeah. out there as an idea. Should college football fans be worried that we're going to see more of this? Because I think this is even different than oh, Jordan yeah. Addison. 100%. And, and it comes down to the people that are in your ear, the people that are talking to you. Um, remember this draft last year was Chicago. Jordan Addison was interviewed and he said he regretted it. He said, if I could go back again, I wouldn't leave. Uh, I would just stayed with my guys, stayed with my teammates. My question would be how many of those are we going to have to hear before players actually listen to it, not hear it, but listen to it. Maybe never. I don't, I don't know. Um, you know, I've heard Herb Street talk about the legacy portion of this. I've heard other guys that played college football talk about it. And I, there's no player that I could go talk to. There, there are a few. There are a few guys that, that would listen and would understand and would try to understand. But there's very few, Connor, that I could go to and say, let me tell you what being at one place for five years did for me for the rest of my life. And there is another side of it. It's very doubtful that fans just won't care. And if you gave us a good two years – 50 years from now, they're still going to love you. I doubt that personally. Don't think it's going to work that way. There are special circumstances like a Jalen Hurts where no Alabama fan is going to say, oh, that guy's a traitor. He left us. The, you know, what Tua was sitting there. Like, what, What's he supposed to do? So, and look how it's worked out for him. I mean, it's it, it worked um, very well. So, I, I just don't know if guys want to hear that part of it right now, but I think it's going to be real down the road. And there is a portion of, the rest of your life that comes into play. Like I see even how Jordan is when we go to Nashville, I see how Roman Harper is when he's around the Alabama program. Like I see how Greg interacts with Alabama fans in the Alabama program. Like I've talked to Jason Swain about playing at Tennessee and I see how much he loves doing radio in Knoxville and being around that program. There's a part of that that lasts forever. And some of these guys, like I just sit back and wonder where are you going to take your kids to games? Like I asked Joe Milton that. I was like, do you even care about Michigan? Like, do, and you know, he gave the politically correct coach speak answer of Michigan was great to me. I have nothing but good thoughts. I'm like, yeah, that's not really what I mean. I said, do you have any intention to ever go back to a game there? He was like, no, I'm a Tennessee guy. I'm like, why would I? I like, okay, cool. I mean, and Tennessee fans will probably love him forever, but it's just, I, I do think that there is a, a little bit of an underbelly here that guys aren't thinking about. Like it's, you can go hit a lick now. Great. Good. Go get a bigger check today, but what's that going to mean for tomorrow and five years later and 10 years later? Because Ole Miss fans would have welcomed him back no matter what forever if he had given him one more year like he's had already.
And it's, I always, this is going to sound like really cryptic and weird, but a, a lot of times I'll notice when an NFL legend or a college legend dies or something, and I'll look at where they died and it's always their college town. Those guys yeah. always end up living like in their college town. And that's, that's a part to this that, Listen, that really I, that's is. A, it's a dream of mine and my wife, honestly, like we would love to live in Auburn, Alabama. And I mean, the real estate has gone kind of through the roof the last couple of years, but, and that's happening actually with a lot of college towns now, because people, like you just said, people want to go back and they want to live there. We would love to raise our kids there with what I do and how I do it. It's just not feasible. Like they're not paying a lot of people to do, you know, daily radio shows in Auburn. Um, and I'm pretty happy with where I am on, in Jocks in Birmingham and I'm happy doing it with Greg, but like we have, we have said, how many places do we have that we would both be a hundred percent happy retiring? There are not many. Auburn is at the top of both of our lists. So to follow up with what you're saying, I think it's very accurate. And people used to always make fun of Cam his first two or three years in the league because he was he was always in Auburn. And I said, well, you you go where you're loved. And he wasn't loved in many other college circles. And he's in a newer NFL town. So, like, where would you spend your off seasons? Back in the place where everybody thinks you're one of the greatest things to ever walk through that town. Of course he would. So, yeah, I think that's there's there's a lot of reality to that, and I I don't know how that'll play out for guys, especially the guys who are getting to their third and fourth schools. Jizik, even after being fired at Auburn, stayed stayed. It was like this is my home. This is I feel like I am still loved here, even though I was fired. It's crazy how that plays out for some of these guys. Uh, definitely something to consider with the portal. Very different note. Another SEC starter hit the portal. Very different circumstances for Seth McLaughlin. He transfers after what's just a, a nightmare game, snapping the football, and it, it wasn't a good season doing that. I read the AL.com article from, I think it was early November, where he talked about, you know, changes his technique, and he feels like those issues are in the rearview mirror, and obviously he was still dealing with that in the postseason. But for those of us who have never done this, can you explain how you viewed this, watching this entire situation play out, and watching the fan frustration with him? Very frustrating. Understand the fans' frustration. It's frustrating for me because it consistently should not be taking place that often. Now, I also have a little bit of sympathy for it because I did it and I've had bad snaps. Uh, I've had, see, for me, I'll, I, I need to clarify. Like, for me, when you say bad snap, that's, that's like the Iron Bowl. It's one that goes past the quarterback, a worm burner over his head. You know, these snaps that are, you know, right above a quarterback's knee and everybody's like, that's a bad snap. It might be inaccurate, but it's not bad. Uh, bad snap is one that can't be managed or handled. Um, and, but he still, he's had his fair share of those. And I think a couple of things happen. I think you get in games and you get against certain guys that you have to change either your steps or one thing that would get me in trouble was I would try to get a jump on guys. So I would try to snap the ball a half a second or second before the actual snap count because I wanted to get a jump on Gerard Warren, who was a tilt nose and ended up being the number three pick in the draft. And if I didn't get a jump on him, I probably no chance I'm getting him blocked or Richard Seymour or Marcus Stroud or Cornelius Griffin or Willie blade or any of the guys I played against that were just better than me. You got to find a way to game it somehow. And so I think sometimes when you're trying to get that head start, it can force you to lose a little bit of technique and fundamentals because you're trying to get out of there so fast that you lose sight of the fact that you're releasing the ball way too early, which is what happens on a low snap. I mean, you can imagine it when the, when the ball is coming out, just reverse throwing the ball. When you hold on to the ball too long, 
it's going to hit the ground. When you let go of a ball snapping it too early, obviously you don't have the upward trajectory, so the ball is going to go flat or go down. Vice versa, when it goes high, you're holding on to it too long. So you get away from that muscle memory because you're doing something different in a game against a guy that you haven't seen the likes of, most likely in practice. And even if I did have a Jimmy Brumball that I went against, we rarely were going to this extent. Full speed in a game is always different than practice because there's just there's more intensity that comes out of you in a game than ever in practice. Even if you're going full speed in practice, the game intensity is just a little bit different. And then if you're trying to game it somewhat, that can also put you at a disadvantage. But the weird part about it, Connor, is that's the first thing you do in practice every day. Center quarterback exchange. It's the first period of every practice. And so myself and the backup center, and then usually three or four other guys who would be the emergency center, so you just had to make sure they knew how to snap, we would go down to center quarterback exchange. And all the quarterbacks would screw around, and the quarterback coach would be joking about whatever with them, and we're sitting there in our stance and our legs are on fire, and they're laughing about what, you know, what kind of dip they like or you know, where they went to eat with their girlfriend last night or what show they're watching. And you know, back then it was like, oh, did you see American Idol last night? It's like, dude, can we snap the ball and stand up? Because my legs are burning. It's like I've been doing an invisible chair for seven minutes. And, you know, they do their little fake throws or whatever. And, like, we have to get in our stance and come off the ball. And you rotate. And so I go Ben Lear. Then I would go Jason Campbell. Then Jeff Klein. Then Daniel Cobb. And so you get a little bit of work with everybody. But you're working on your snaps. And then I, I snapped after practice every day. It just I, some days 10, some days 100. Um, ben and I snapped every day in the summer during the week, Monday through Friday. We would be out there. He would work all of his drops. He would work all of his run steps. Like we'd say, all right, 26, 27. And we would run it and we would run it. All right, 34, 35. And we would run it and we would run it. So he gets his steps in. I get my steps in. And we're getting snaps in constantly. And that's why he and I never had a bad snap ever. And now we were under center a lot more. But, I mean, it was never even close. Had a bad snap with Gabe Gross. Had a bad snap with Jason Campbell. And so, especially in practice, some of those guys. But they didn't we didn't we didn't have the thousands of snaps that Ben and I had so it's it's so much repetition it's so much feel I will defend him a little bit from this perspective also this whole clap thing is I think it's much more difficult than people believe in and I think the bigger the game the more difficult it becomes because you saw what the Auburn kid did and I don't think that was intentional I think he was trying to get the attention of his teammate personally but, I mean, he comes up and he's, you know, doing that right there. There's this video floating around of the Michigan kid who's smacking his thigh pads. Like, I would imagine that sounds very similar. And I thought the clap was dumb for the longest time. And then Lane explained it to me and said, when you clap, like, the audible noise you can make via clap is louder than anything you can verbalize. You can't do it. Like, it's not physically possible to yell anything as loud as a clap. But you're seeing these defensive guys, like they're starting to game it a little bit. Like they're starting to find ways to make it where it can be confusing or cause you to snap the ball. And I do think there have been a few instances with him like that, with other guys like that, and some we'll never know about. But, you know, it's unfortunate because still, if, if it's inaccurate, it's inaccurate. It doesn't matter if somebody clapped before you or slapped their thigh pads, whatever. Like you've got to get that ball to where the quarterback can handle it and manage it. And the reality was – Jalen Milrow had to take his eyes down on that last snap and it affected the play. How 5%, 55%. I don't, I don't know, 
because J.C. Latham didn't help by getting run back in to where he bumped into his quarterback. And his eyes coming down prevented him from going off left tackle where the play was designed to go. I don't think the throw in the flat was really an option. I, I just I, I don't think that gets into the end zone. It would have to, number one, it would have to be a perfect throw to where the back catches that full stride and can just dart to the corner of the end zone. Both receivers have to make a good block and the the safety is coming over. Like he's gonna have an opportunity to make that play. So your best bet was right off the left tackle's hip or the left the right guard's hip pulling around, and he couldn't see that. And I think he kind of panicked, and I think he said, oh, hell, I got to go. And, and he just went, which is probably smart, honestly, because when you're not looking, you don't know what's happening, so you just go. But I hate it for him because I think he's a good kid, and I think he's been, I think he's been a model student athlete. He does things for charity. Um, and, you know, he was put in some really bad situations. I mean, your first start of the year is against Jordan Davis and that Georgia D-line, which is the best we've ever seen. And he goes out there and plays his ass off and has a great game. So – some of it, I understand the frustration. Some of it shouldn't happen, but I sympathize with a little bit of it as well because I've been through some of it and have an understanding of how difficult it can be. Is there anything that could have been done to, to kind of change what happened? I mean, is, is there, was there any sort of fix? Is this a byproduct of, of the portal and not having the, the, those depth guys that you would really like? Well, guys no, that have you, had, you had your other starting center there. And I think it's a fair question to ask, like, where's Darren Dowcourt in all this? Honestly, and, and that's one of the things, not this specific instance, and, and Coach Saban's the one that's told me this. One of the things the portal is doing is it's removing second-team guys from these rosters. And the way Coach Saban explained it, which was brilliant, he said, when you take a second-teamer, everybody just says, oh, I got in play. Don't worry about it. But what you don't understand is he's been in our system. He's been through our workouts. He's been through our practices. He knows how we practice, what the drills are, where the drills are, how we're expected to go through it. And he said, we get a new guy in, we have to retrain him to all of that. He actually gave us a specific example of a certain position coach that came in and took guys. Actually, you heard it on one of those shows that they did, one of the behind the scenes shows or whatever. And he's like, why are we spending 15 minutes down here? And he's like, well, so-and-so didn't know the drill. We got to take him through the drill. He's like, well, teach him the drill before practice. Why are we wasting our practice time? on the other seven guys, because the one guy doesn't know how to do it. Like you've got to be more efficient than that. But that's what he's saying is here comes new guy. That's going to compete for a spot. He doesn't even know where the offensive line practices on the field. He doesn't know how they go through the shoots, how they push the sled. If they do T boards first or second or third, or how hard they're expected to go in certain drills that they do. And they run, if they split the left side and the right side, how they manage, you know, their one-on-one pass rush when the defensive line comes over, they have to relearn all that stuff. And so it, that takes time and time is valuable and you don't have a ton of it with these college football players. So I don't think this instance is really portal related, but I do think in a lot of ways, a lot of things like this that we're seeing are directly related to it. And I just, I think it's a very fair question to say, where was the next guy? Because this wasn't the Rose bowl. I think Jordan charted Jordan. And I were talking about it. He said he charted the sec championship game and there were like, 15 or 17 inaccurate snaps, not bad, but inaccurate snaps where the quarterback has to change a little bit of something to manage the snap. That shouldn't be happening. So if it's happening to that extent, my my way of fixing it to answer that part of your question, the next guy's got to go in. Yeah, That's the only thing that would hit me hard as a player is you put my ass on the bench and we got a problem. And the major problem is with me. And so I got to go figure out a way to fix that. And that never happened. So 
that tells me that there was either a lack of trust, a lack of execution, or there, something was going on to where at some point you did it with quarterback. That's what that was going to be my point. You did it with quarterback. You told your quarterback you, you ain't playing. Yeah, you told your quarterback you ain't going this game. Sorry. And part of that is because of your performance, and part of that's because how you're acting. So we're going to figure it out. And they did. So the fact that that never took place is, is very alarming to me in a lot of ways. How bizarre is it to watch Alabama struggle in pass protection for the majority of the last three seasons? I, and I think they had issues where it, it, it looked like they, some of it was figured out in 2022. How much of it is just Bryce Young and the, the style that he plays, having to block for that long, where some of those numbers can be maybe a bit inflated when his first year as a starter. Uh, but it just does it doesn't feel like a group that's anywhere near the levels at in 2020, where there were games where it felt like Mac Jones wasn't getting touched. And now they're at such right. a different place. Seeing this group not necessarily have that be a strength, is, is it telling? Is that fixable? Like, where is Alabama at? And why has that been such a weakness? It's definitely repairable. There's no doubt. Um, there, because there were some – first off, you're starting a true freshman at left tackle. That's – you're going to get bumps in that road. There just are. Like, that's not going to be – a newly paved interstate. It's just, that's going to be kind of a backcountry road or like a road that hadn't been repaired in a long time. Like there's going to be potholes and there's going to be branches in the road. Like you just, you got to figure that thing out. Weird turns. It's you expect that. Um, the, the parts that and listen, a lot of this, you've seen me talk about it. We did a whole segment on read and react about it. I tweeted about it. This whole reliance on slide protection is just, it's in my opinion, it's egregious. It really is. And it can be, and when I say slide, I include all of it, three-quarter slide, half slide, full slide, and full slide would be everybody. Three-quarter would be like the left guard and everybody right going, half slide, center right going. And it just, we've become so reliant on this because it is a, it's, a, it's basically a bailout. When we ran slide protection when I was in school, it was essentially like an oh shit protection. Like we, there's, we know we can't pick this up, Okay, so we are going to try to fortify this area in front of the quarterback to the best of our ability for as long as possible, knowing good and well, you're probably going to get hit. But we know this seven yard space, whatever it is in width, like we, we can handle that. Whatever they want to do, we'll take care of that. And the back's going to come to the end man on the line of scrimmage and try to handle that. But if it gets wacky over there, the ball's got to come out. Well, now you're putting that weak point sometimes in the A gap, sometimes in the B gap, sometimes outside the tackle. Uh, there was one where Alabama runs where they asked the backs to come across the line of scrimmage into the A gap and pick up a linebacker who's lined up at the line of scrimmage. That's a difficult task. Number one, just geographically, where you're coming from to go make that block. Linebacker's going to have a head start on you because that's not a, you know, full speed like two gladiators running at each other with their you know swords that's not it like he has to shuffle across and get squared up on that guy and then try to take on somebody with a three or four yard head start that really only cares about running them over um, and so then the part that we've really lost with all of that is guys are not being football players anymore it is this tunnel vision I do think the portal actually comes into play here some because we're losing development at a lot of positions and imagine you go, guys are missing spring practice because they're sitting in the dorm waiting for a place to, to take them or they need to finish school and they've already said that they're going to leave. 
And then you have guys that go somewhere else. And like I said, you got to be retrained how to practice. You lose reps that way. You're not the immediate starter. So you're not getting as many reps as a starter does as you might back at your old place. And then systems change, fundamental technique. It all changes. It's different. So I think now you have guys that are in this tunnel vision, and this is partly sports to blame too. Like, like I had, I, we had parents at my house a couple of weeks ago and they were talking about their kid who's in first grade and how they don't like the fact that he's left-handed because he can only play first base and right field. And I mean, I about kicked him out of my house. Miss me with that. I, was, I hate I that. Like, <laughs> God. You're, you're telling me if your kid is not, is the best hitter at Homewood high school, 13 years from now, whatever it is, that they ain't going to find a place for him. He'll be fine. He'll be fine. And if he's the best hitter, he can play whatever position he wants to. Or he'll tell him he'll transfer to another school and they'll probably have to play him. I digress. We don't allow guys to play football. Everything is, okay, take one step to your right and that's your responsibility because it requires less coaching. It requires less time. And it's something that you know they can execute, that part of it. Now, what doesn't come with that is when I'm sliding one step to my right and we have a defender in the gap to my left not leaving the next player next to me on an island by himself. So I can execute slide protection with my eyes. So I can post and stay and help with this badass nose guard who's probably going to wear my left guard out if I leave him by himself, especially since he's already got an advantage being in a gap and he's got to come down. I can help. My eyes can be in this gap that I'm supposed to physically go to. And then when I do need to go to it, I can go. So there are things based on alignment and either – probabilities or possibilities, whatever that could potentially happen that you don't necessarily have to go worry about right this second. That's being a football player. And that's how we were taught pass protection. We, we had one against Georgia when we, when we smashed Georgia, um, what was that? 99 Ben set the school record. We run slot cause they ran man coverage on the outside. Ronnie Daniels went crazy that game. They just stayed in man. Ben kept throwing fades. Like they couldn't stop him. And we run slide protection. We run slide, and the player in my gap bails out. My eyes go outside. There's a corner crash coming, and we had never been coached ever. He had never, Hugh Nall never said anything about when you see a corner come, pop out and go get him. But I had a technique called a pop technique. When I had a backer walked up on me, and there was another defender on the line of scrimmage outside, and we didn't have enough to pick both of them up, I would make a pop call where I set back, and if that linebacker came, I took him. If he dropped, I would pop out and take the back. So my brain kind of goes there, and I popped out, and I come, and I barely hit the corner before he gets to Ben. He throws a touchdown to Ronnie Daniels. Like, we, we have lost so much of that in this robotic tunnel vision, just do this one little thing instead of go play football, man. Like, go be a football player. And I think some of that, um, I got to talk to your guy Liam Cohen about this. And I voiced my frustrations with it. He voiced his frustrations with it. And then he admitted, I was like, these guys are so scared to let these kids play football. And he looked at me and kind of grinned and he goes, yeah, me, sign me up. He said, and I hate it and I don't want to ever run it. He said, but there's not enough time for us to, to do all these things. So sometimes we have to do that. And, and I realize that, and I'm not saying that it should never be done or never be attempted, but there's, there's got to be a give and a take of conceptually understanding all of it. And that's another place the portal hurts because I didn't start to understand coverage until probably my third year at Auburn. Number one, I just never cared about it. Number two, I didn't understand that 
what those two were doing had a lot to do with what these four or five were doing. And what those two way out wide were doing also had something to do with the two or three behind those four or five were doing. But once I learned that, I could start paying attention to that and it would help me with other things. That's one of the things I tell kids when they ask me, like, what would you have done different? What would you do different? I said, I'd go sit in defensive meetings. I would just ask them if we weren't meeting, I would ask the coordinator or the DB, secondary coach, can I just sit in here and, and, and listen and watch? Because I just want to know. I don't want to cheat you guys, but I was like, I want to know how it works. Teach me how it works. And I, I should have done. I wish I would have done that. But we've gotten so specialized in everything and so far away from that. And we're trying to make everything so easy that it actually increases the chances, the likelihood of, lo of losses. And when I say losses, I don't mean games. I mean like individual or unit losses. Because like you said in that game, I mean, there's a couple of free runners and you're, you're wasting guys. You're wasting linemen because you asked them to go do this one simple task instead of the difficult task, which could have all easily sorted it out. So it's not an Alabama problem. It's a lot of people problem. And the Bryce Young stuff was, was different. One, because of what you said, he moved a lot and did a lot of things that made it more difficult. But also, and I, if you read into what Coach Saban said in some of the press conferences those years, he was frustrated with they did too much that was the same. And I think that's where a little bit of Bill O'Brien's NFL background kind of worked against him because watch some of these NFL offenses. Like the presentation of it is not always super different. It's just we have Josh Allen and we have Stephon Diggs, so we're probably going to win a lot of these reps. You know, Tom Brady's like, we have Gronk. You can't cover him. We don't need to motion seven times. We don't need to trade formations 11 times. Like, it's man coverage. Here it comes. 87's getting the ball. I hope you can stop it because I don't think you can. It doesn't work that way in college. So I, I think that that kind of worked against him because there were so many plays when Bryce would put the ball down for a play fake and there's no back. And I'm just like, have we just gotten to where like this is just like a part of what we do? I, 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 don't, I don't understand. So I think that worked against him a little bit. I think Bill's a very good football coach. But I think in that instance, having that player, it did – because you want that player to go win your games. He's your best player. But you also – in college, I think it's even more important to alter the presentation of what you're doing as much as possible to get those advantages like Sark does and like Lane does. Pass protection is going to be a big topic of discussion on Monday night. You're Joe Mora winning – Joe Moore award-winning offensive line Washington. That's where they thrive, obviously. You saw them last year in the Alamo Bowl. You were there in Seattle to present them with the award. You saw the playoff game. The, the Texas front that we talked about so much, it didn't feel like they were losing all these battles and like they were just getting totally dominated. It just felt like they had the right quarterback in place to be able to overcome this, and mm -hmm. Texas couldn't quite take over. How likely is it that we see – this this Washington offensive line hold up well against Michigan's front and essentially do what Alabama could. I, I think they have a very good chance to number one, some of the things that we just mentioned about, I'll call it professional pass sets and professional protections. Ryan Grubb carries a great deal of those. Now they'll slide it and they'll go quick. That's they have it, but he's not overly reliant on it. And so he's not afraid to say you five have to block these five. So I think the confusion portion of what got Alabama is going to be less likely to happen against Washington. Also, that presentation part that we talked about, 
I'd put Grubb in the top three of college football of being able to do that. Like some of the guys that I mentioned, presentation that you get from a Liam Cohen or a Lane Kiffin or a Steve Sarkeesian, you're going to get, and that's one of the things that I really thought that Michigan did a great job of against Alabama. We had not seen a ton of creativity from them pre-snap. They haven't had to do it, and they found it. And Sean Moore did a great job with that. Um, Ryan Grubb is, I think, as good or better than anybody. I mean, he'll, he has literally every formation, every call, every movement, every shift, every, every motion. Like He's got all of it. So I think that can be utilized to offset some of it. Because uh, even though Michigan is super talented, if you go back and watch what gave the Washington offensive line problems, it was mostly Byron Murphy. I mean, uh, just to be 100% real, like he was the one that was a real problem. And I know Tavonde Sweat gets a lot of the credit and he deserves it, but when you're talking about having a little bit of twitch and being able to make guys miss and being loose, like Byron Murphy is, is that guy. Sweat is not so much that guy. And so he caused some problems, and he won some one-on-ones and some two-on-ones. But I, I don't know if Michigan has guys close to that, but not. I don't think they have him, just being honest. Um, and I think Washington can offset some of the confusion that Alabama had problems with. And I don't think – I also don't – I think Michigan's secondary is good. I don't know if – you know, I think, I think Texas had to really – kind of go out of their way to try to help protect that group, Michigan probably won't. So they may be able to devote more bodies up front to be able to at least show different things. And I'll be interested to see how Washington offsets that because they're really good outside the numbers and they're really good in the quick game. And that's, that's how you, that's, I mean, that's the main way to, to deal with it. Look at what McCarthy did. I mean, a lot of those quick throws to the backs and to the receivers in motion, like boom, hit them out in the flat and then just let them work. Well, like Penix is great with that. So Will he have time to set up and throw downfield a bunch? Maybe not, but I think they have other ways that they can offset it. As an offensive lineman, it feels like Penix is kind of the ideal quarterback to block for in a lot of different ways where he's this pure passer who can throw on schedule. Like you said, he can hit the quick stuff on the outside. He is constantly well aware. Like his pocket presence at this point of his career is, is so much better than what, what I saw early in his career at Indiana. And that's the area where I, I really think he's taken that step. And everybody talks about the delivery. It looks weird, but he, he can just get the ball out on target. And he just understands protections and reads. At least it feels like it watching him. How special is he, especially seeing him in person? You've seen him in person a couple times now. He's insane. Honestly. I, and it was, it was really cool to be on the field pass doing the mega cast with Colt McCoy, who played quarterback and had seen him, but seeing him in person sort of being wowed at what he was doing. And Colt made multiple references at just how fast the ball was coming out. And he said, it just looks so effortless, but there's so much velocity on the football. And the accuracy after moving, uh, because it was funny, because Acho said one time, like, you've got to get him off his spot. And I said, well, the problem, Acho, is they've gotten him off his spot, and he's found a new spot, and he's still completing passes. He's like, no, you're right. He said it's frustrating for a defender. And so I think all those things to he, to see how Colt reacted to it was really cool. But he has and, – and also I asked, I asked Mike Penix and Ryan Grubb after the game, I said, these quarterback runs, is, how many of those were new? How many have you had? Because they haven't lived there. That's not, not been who they are. And, and Grubb kind of laughed, and he said, you know, we, we put a few new wrinkles in with it. We always have it just in case. He said, but I'm very protective of Mike and – 
So we don't like to live there. He said, but if that's what you're going to give us and that's where we can hurt you, then we'll go to it if we have to. And we, we switched a few things up to make it to where we thought we could have some success. Texas took away some of the perimeter run where I thought Washington would have success. And so that's kind of why they changed the reads and went to it. Um, but he's special, man. Like I, you always love to have a quarterback that gets the ball out on time. That's the main thing. And then can move and then moves to reset and throw. Um, you know, the, the Johnny Manziel, you know, running in circles can be very frustrating because you can be right. And all of a sudden you feel like you're handling your defender and then you're wrong because he's right there in his lap. Um, and then too, I think just what he controls at the line of scrimmage, the command of the offense that he has. And on top of all of that, the individual that he is, I mean, I've gotten to know him a little bit, talked to him, heard a lot of stories about him, seeing how he talks to people, seeing how he deals with his teammates. Like he's, he is as special of a human as he is a football player. And so, yeah, there are a lot of reasons I think he'd be fun to block for. Do you have a prediction for, for Monday night? Are you going Washington? I am. Yeah, and it's not super analytical. Uh, just like in the Pac-12 title game, it wasn't. And just like against Texas, it wasn't. I thought they had real inherent advantages against Texas. But um, – and I still – like I, maybe it's an advantage for me having been around that team last year, a little bit this year. Um, I just I, – I got a good feel on their makeup. And it, they're a very mature team. Um, they are – they have a quiet confidence. I actually – I asked Kalen, I said, you know, I said, there's, it feels like certain teams, we know when, like, you know, like I know, like certain teams have it and there's just something. Um, like 2013 Auburn, there was just something, you know, they, they didn't win at all, but like they had something to them. I mean, there's other teams like, you know, 2010 Auburn, we, it's Cam. Like that's pretty much it. Like 2019 LSU, there wasn't a lot of debate on why they're good. Like, yes, they were that good, but we knew who the great players were and why they won. There's some teams that just like they just figure it out, kind of like TCU last year. Um, I remember last year TCU, like people, uh, they've trailed seven times in the fourth quarter, and I'm like, well, shit, man, like it's it's really hard to come back and win in the fourth quarter when you're down. I don't know why people think that's like not easy, but it's not. Same thing with Washington. What do they want? Eight games in a row by one score or less. It's not easy to do that, and in my opinion. I gain respect for you when you do those things. And I understand all the people who say we never should have been in that position in the first place. Well, not everybody's, you know, mid-90s Florida State, beating them all by 63 and 72 points. Like, that's just not the way it always works. So I asked him, I said, what is the it with this team if you had to try to put your finger on it? And he's like, it's interesting because I know exactly what you're talking about. And, yeah, sometimes we don't know. Sometimes it's veterans. Sometimes it's leadership. He said, but this team, it's confidence. And he said the cool part about it is, we focus on it a lot. We have conversations about it in the off season. We talk about it. He said, we take time and practice to pull guys aside and say, this is why you should be confident in what you're running here. This is why you should be confident in why this play will work. He said, we go out of our way to, to try to instill extra confidence in those guys. And that's why when the lights are shining the brightest, we feel like our guys play with the utmost confidence. So I just think there's something about this group that they're just not going to let it happen. Like that's they they understand that no matter what the circumstance is, if it's physicality, if it's speed, if it's coverage, if it's pressure, whatever it is, they'll figure it out. The defense is a perfect example of that. It's not a great defense, but I feel like they find where they need to be great in individual games. And they, they go like make that happen. Like Braylon tries the other night, like they couldn't stop the guy but they lined him up in different places to make sure he impacted that game. So 
I'm just not going to go against them. I do think that I think up front Washington can have some success defensively. I think they will. It's going to be tough for them to slow the run down. They're going to have to dedicate extra bodies to it. But I think they can go score 21-24 on accident. I really do. Like, I mean, because you're talking about creating three or four explosive plays. They can get that. And the Michigan defense is real, man. They're good. But if they're going to try to bring some of the pressure packages and play zone against this group that they did against Alabama, good luck. They'll need help on the back end for sure. There's no doubt about that. Uh, one last thing for you, your interview after the Alamo Bowl, it, it made the rounds for all the right reasons. Martel Irby's story, it was incredible. You told it beautifully with him. Um, I, I just want to say this because there's been a lot of discussion about, you know, sideline reporters, sideline analysts and, and the role that it has in today's day and age, consuming a football game and stuff. And I, I just thought it was one of those reminders that that we need to do this and there are so many different ways in which we can tell a story on a broadcast. And that is something that you guys have done. Um, and it sounds like I'm just blowing smoke and I promise I'm not, but I, I just thought that was such a cool thing to be able to see. And it was such an authentic moment for those that have just talked about everything that's wrong with college football. I'm guilty of that as well. The money that's, that's being thrown around here and, and it, it's lack of purity. It, it just was one of those cool things to be able to see. So I, I wanted to be able to kind of thank you for reminding us how special this sport can be and for having the presence of mind in that moment. It's just a two minute clip. And if you haven't seen it, you should go. It's on. It's all over the Internet. I mean, you can find it in two seconds. But I, I wanted to thank you for that, because I think we needed a reminder in the midst of this bowl season that there there is a little bit there is a little bit of this purity that's still left in the sport. I appreciate it. And the cool part about it is that is kind of that team really in general. Uh, their quarterback, Noah Fafita, um, had no other Power 5 offers coming out. But uh, they took him because T-Mac, their wide receiver, who deserves to be mentioned with Roma Dunze, Malik Neighbors, um, Marvin Harrison Jr., like he is on that level and had, had the numbers this year, but nobody talks about him. Um, you know, he's, he's short. And if he was 6'2", we'd be talking about where, what, you know, how high he was going to be drafted. But he's a really good player. Um, there's a couple of walk-on, former walk-ons that play major roles, like Traden Stukes, safety, former walk-on. He won their off-season program, which is very competitive, and now is a star on that team. Um, Jacob Manu, inside linebacker. He's like your size, seriously. Led the Pac-12 in tackles this year. Uh, and when you see him, you're just like, there's no way. Like, physically, there's no way. Like he is literally like a collegiate Sam Mills. There's just, there's no way he led the Pac 12 in tackles. The guy's super productive and will knock your head off. Um, Martell is another one of those stories. Just a guy that had, you know, had some things not go his way, decided to give up football, realized he needed football, and talked to his former D coordinator at LSU, who is now at Arizona. And he said, I'll help you, but I don't have a spot for you. And he had the last money that he, that he had. He went and he bought that Kia and he moved to Tucson and he got a job at, you know, 24 seven fitness, whatever it was. Cause he needed to take a shower. He didn't have an apartment and finally, you know, got a spot on the team, bet on himself, got a scholarship. And, you know, were, it was funny that a bunch of guys who are like Arizona beat reporters who are like tweeting about this kid will have 14 tackles this year. I'm like, well, he just had seven and a half by himself in this game and punched a football out and picked off a ball. So I don't really care what he did in the other 12 games or whatever. Like he, he balled in this game. Um, you know, T-Mac, who we talked about, 
had big offers in NIL to leave. And he has been playing football since eighth grade with Noah Fafita, his quarterback. Jacob Manu was also on that team. And when, when Jed Fish went to go recruit T-Mac, he saw Jacob Manu and he asked the head coach, he's like, what's the inside linebackers deal? He's like, nobody's talking to him. Don't worry about it. He goes, no, we're offering him tonight. Like right now, we're going to offer him a scholarship. And that's how he got there. So, you know, they got a player from UCLA that was their best player on defense that can't start. Um, you know, they got a kid from Georgia and Bill Norton that couldn't play at Georgia. That is a major player for them up front on defense. And they got a transfer from Michigan off the edge. It's really good. They got a couple guys that other people just were kind of done with that. They found their way. They're this really weird, like band of, you know, misfits and who other people deem to be failures or not good enough that have just Jed fish has sort of allowed them to find their way. It's an awesome team to be around because, uh, everybody that you talk to, why are they playing? Why are they not in the portal? Like, yeah, Jake, Del- and keep in mind, this is a team that won 10 games and had to make a quarterback change in the middle of the season. Yep. Uh, then you ask them all why they do it. Why are they playing? Why are they here? Why are they good? And they just, we love each other. Like we love our teammates. We love our guys. So yeah, the things that we hope college football still embodies, there's a ton of that on that Arizona team right now. And so it was a pleasure covering them. That was very little me, and that was a lot of Martell Irby. That's just that's who he is. That's his story. So I'm, I was fortunate to be able to visit with him before the Mississippi State game. We had him, and I kind of got to learn his story a little bit and got to know him. And that's just that's just who he is. And they got they got good players. Like I mean, the left tackle that didn't play, he's a first rounder. He's a first round tackle. And T Mac will be a first round receiver one day. Uh, they have uh, Jacob Cowan, another receiver that's going to blow up the combine with his workout. He'll be an early draft pick. He's really good. They have multiple backs. DJ Williams, who played at Auburn and Florida State, is a good back. But they have two or three really good backs. They're just a good team. And I think they play like that. They play like a team. And it's really cool to see. And Fafita's awesome. Like Once he took yeah. over, I was like, this this is a different team. Do not look at this team like the one that we saw against Mississippi State. Like This is drastically different the things that they're capable of. And it was, it was fun to watch them and fun for them to be able to, to, to get that moment. Hopefully a team that we're talking about next year, maybe in the mix for a 12 team playoff spot. Uh, Cole, you're the best man. Get some sleep. We'll do this again soon. <laughs> I appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Lad of the week. Uh, I've got a little bit of a different one. I, we usually do this, this segment to, to highlight somebody that just had, um, a great accomplishment or, or something like that. And uh, look, Gene Chizik has had a lot of probably not so great things that have been said, written about him over the course of the last two years as defense coordinator at UNC. But uh, he was unfortunately fired um, in his, from his role at, uh, at North Carolina. And uh, look, I, I always tell people, I don't have a team. I root for people in this business. I've been rooting for Chizik for, for Chizik for a while. And, ever since he allowed us the opportunity uh, to, to get to know him. He is somebody that I will always continue to, uh, to bang the drum for. He is all bang the drum team coach for me forever. Um, and I'm, I'm super bummed. I'm, I'm super bummed. And there are not a whole lot of headlines, even when I feel like I can see them coming a bit um, that get me truly bummed anymore. But seeing that uh, it, it's, it's a bummer just because, Two years ago, when uh, he was going to be in town in Orlando, he was doing a speaking in- engagement. And I've told this story before. So if you've been listening to this show for a little while, I hate to repeat myself, but I'm going to do it anyways. 
uh, and he was in town in Orlando for a speaking engagement. He was going to be speaking. I think it was like the Orlando touchdown club, something like that. He's going to be meeting up with his boy, Gus. Obviously he and Gus are still really, really tight. And uh, he sent me a message. He's like, Hey, um, we'd love to grab dinner with you. And I was like, all right, dinner with Chizik. Yes. Sign me up. We're going to make this happen. No matter what I had Lauren look up a place. Lauren like looked up a foodie forum um, in she has like a foodie forum that like go to, to be able to find restaurants in certain spots and stuff like that. And, and uh, she's like, go to this place, high tide Harry's it's right by the airport. She's like, can you take an Uber, drive a car. He's got a rental car, whatever. Um, and we'll get there. And, you know, I had had, we've had him on the show and getting to spend the day with him at SEC network studios. That was what kind of changed our impressions of him. And I've, you know, been fortunate enough to be able to carry a little bit of a relationship uh, with him to that point. And, you know, being able to sit down with him that night, get there. I think we got there at like seven o'clock or whatever. And it was a Sunday night and we closed the place down. And it was just one of those conversations that you just don't want to end because if you've ever dealt with Chizik before, if you've ever spoken to him, you know, like he's just the best. He's, he's just the absolute best. And I saw that night, the passion that he still had for coaching. And he talked about how he's got a great life and they would go with his wife on these vacations and stuff, even during football season, but he'd be sitting there on his phone, looking up pressure packages and stuff and like figuring out modern defenses and ways to, to be able to, you know, do things that, that he wasn't doing 10 years ago and, and staying on top of it just because he still had that desire. He still felt like he had something in the tank to be able to coach. And, you know, for a couple of those years, it felt like, ah, he's just kind of flirting with this opportunity. And, you know, maybe he's just doing this to try and get his name out there. He wants to stay relevant, involved in these searches, but he really wanted to continue coaching and he still had that passion. And so I was thrilled for him that he got an opportunity with this guy, Mac Brown, who, you know, if you've ever heard me tell the story before of like when Chiswick was fired from, from Auburn, Mac Brown said, Hey, go spend a week in my cabin up in Montana. And like, that's, that's what you do when you're a fired head coach. It's like, just get away. And I'm sure right now Chiswick is probably sitting on a beach somewhere, like a million miles away from his phone with his wife, maybe mm -hmm. with his kids, just hanging out, having a good time. Um, and I hope that he is. And I hope that he's got, you know, plenty of great times ahead in his life. I don't know. You know, I haven't reached out to him again to figure out what his next step in coaching is or, or anything like that. I hope he gets back on SEC Network Airways because I think he's excellent. And I think anybody at SEC Network would tell you that they missed not having him there on the desk the last two years. But just somebody that I, I've grown so much respect for. And I, I'm not sitting here telling you that he ran a, a defense that that he felt like was was good enough to be able to sustain long term success or anything like that. Um, but I'm just bummed. I, I'm just bummed because he is a human being that uh, I, I've really liked and I've really liked getting to know and to hear stories from him um, and just the, the person that, that he has been to me. Uh, I. I, I will continue to root for him. And I don't know what his next step is or anything like that. So I know a lot of people are kind of dogging him, dogging UNC and what they were these last two years with him running that unit. But I was glad for him that he got to scratch that itch, that, that coaching itch where he felt like he still had some meat left on the bone after he left UNC initially because he wanted to be able to see his son play high school football and got back into it because he's like, all right, I, I still have that desire. He's back at Furman. Like I'm, I'm doing my thing. And, and, uh, and Chizik has, made a good life for himself and he's going to be just fine. So I'm not necessarily saying you need to feel bad for him or anything like that, but just wanted to shout out my guy and, and, and hope he's doing well right now. Maybe he's listening to this on the beach. Hopefully probably looking at pressure packages. That's just what he does. You just can't take it out of him. That, that is Gene Chizik. Yeah. He's a guy that, you know, early, 
I still call this early in my football, you know, fandom. That was a team we'd never seen before. That was a team we'd never, and we will never see again. That that team with Chizik, Gus, Cam Newton, Nick Fairley, Lutz, like that was one of the teams that kind of made me fall further in love with college football. And I think that, you know, I, that's great, great pick for a lot of the week because he is a guy who's seen it all, you know, from his hiring to being on top of the world, getting a second chance, all this different stuff. And I'm, I'm 100% with you. I think that, you know, go hang out with Gus, you know what I'm saying? Get you an analyst job in a couple of years or something. Enjoy the Florida sun because, like, you're a made man. You've done it. Like, you won a championship. You, you silenced all the haters, and you got to have fun. And I think if, if coaching's still fun, keep coaching. If not, the dude's made enough money that he probably can chill, you know? If Chiswick and my guy KJ Jefferson are both living here in Orlando, how much time is too much time to be just hanging out with both? I don't know. I don't know. Maybe look, I've, I, I told KJ his money is no good here. Mm-hmm. The guest room is his, the guest room slash office that I am currently recording this podcast out of. He's good. He's got a place to stay forever. Um, he's not going to have to worry about, no, I'm just kidding. Uh, but that, that would, I, I would love to see that. I would love to be able to see that. That was something that I, I've talked to him about is, was the idea of, Hey, what, what would it look like uh, if you decided to like join forces with Gus uh, and, and be able to to do that again. Like what, what exactly would that look like? And it was, it was a possibility that he was always open to, obviously like he loves Orlando. He spent time here. Obviously he's, he is a Florida boy through and through. So I hope that he will be coming through my neck of the woods and who knows, maybe another trip to high tide Harry's is, is in order for that. Um, but yeah, the, the guy has lived a, a pretty crazy football life. Uh, if you mm-hmm. consider like kind of where he came from the highs, the lows, all of it, but know that he's got a lot of good days in his future. Yeah, I'm, I'm excited to see, you know, what the next chapter is. Um, and for us, you know, it's, it's also kind of closing the book we've talked about for this season. Now, full disclosure, Connor, I told you this off air. My, I was about to have Cole out of the week, so it was going to be the two SEC running backs that played in the games. So it's Schrader and Judkins. Judkins, of course, finished the job and I guess started a new job or started applying for jobs, who among us, you know, so so I get that. But I will, I will keep the focus on those two programs. I think that Mizzou and Ole Miss did something this year that very few people – other than Adam Spencer, who probably saw both of them coming. Actually, now that I think about it, i got to give him credit. But uh, uh, very few people saw coming. You know, this was a team that we talked about, you know, not totally being able to, you know, with Ole Miss, it was almost like they were unserious. It was like Lane had all this talent. He had all this ability, but he didn't want to be professional and put it all together. First 11-win season in program history is putting it together. I think that's, that's at the end of the day, all the great coaches that have come before him, all the history that Ole Miss has had, no one's done this. And obviously, you know, Number of games, not that different because he still didn't play for a conference championship game. So it's not like he had like 14 tries or anything. Um, and so point being, I, I think that's super cool. I love the culture that they're building at Ole Miss, even if Jenkins does, you know, move on. The way that they've managed the quarterback situation we talked about last time, the way that they have, you know, been fun and become a destination in the portal. And then this one is even more kind of, um, I guess, heartfelt because the guys at Mizzou, I mean, all three of them, Brady Cook, Luther Burden, Cody Schrader, uh, you know, I, I talked about this kind of like as I was watching the game or previewing that game. It's like that is a, a triumvirate, a trio that you just do not want to see in one of these bowl games. I mean, it's some guys, two guys that have been around that have, you know, been through the battles. And Luther Burden, who's a legit five star receiver, who is, you know, top five player in the country. And they all had opportunities to make different decisions. They all had opportunities to kind of cower away from everything. But putting that trust back in drink and him hiring his own offensive coordinator, I think was a surprising thing i think that we said both of these teams had kind of peaked out with Ole miss kind of hitting that hard ceiling with bama and lsu 
Um, and they just happened to play Georgia this year. They could have gone for even more wins, honestly. But point being, like, I, I think that it's super cool. Like we talked about with, you know, Grubb and, and DeBoer out in Washington, whenever you do things your way and you trust your guys and you all stay together, I think I think it's super cool. And I think that, you know, like I said, I, I love watching Judkins Ole Miss wherever he goes. I think that's cool. But I, it's just it's just really, really cool that these group of guys believed in each other, grinded it out, and they can now look up and say, you know, every legend of these programs can now say thank you to them, you know, because despite what Mizzou was doing in the big, big 12 and all that, this is truly, and even in the early SEC, I'm not going to discount that, but this team does feel a little bit more sustainable. It feels like they've, they've really found something that works. So I, th- I think it's super cool when guys change the culture of a program, like every coach says they want to in the press conference. These are two guys that I think pretty clearly have done that. Cody Schrader is Mizzou through and through very much. So, and Look, there are going to be people that when he runs a four seven or something at the combine, people are just going to rip that guy and say like, ah, he's like a late day three guy. And I don't. Really, to be honest, maybe maybe I shouldn't even get into those discussions because I don't really care about the NFL stuff as much. And people use that to try and and say like, oh, well, that makes him like less of a player in college or whatever. Mm-hmm. I'm not. I'm not that guy. That just doesn't really doesn't really you know get me going either way on either side of the fence. But um, I, yeah. That guy could not play in the NFL a down, and I would still say he is so important to what they tried to do this year in, in establishing themselves as trying to be one of the premier programs in this new era of college football, uh, a place that is, is hopeful that it can consistently compete for a spot in the 12-team playoff. That is what so many programs are going to be trying to do, and getting guys like Cody Schrader, it's not easy. It's, it's not a given that you can – you know, get, go to the D2 ranks and get someone like him. But um, mm-hmm. seeing the player that he has become, I, I hope that we gave him his flowers enough on, on this show. I think we did. I definitely think we did. If you heard the, the comments that Hester had about him, I mean, goodness. I, like, I wasn't kidding. I, I truly think Hester would make him his sixth son. I, I think that that is within the realm of possibility. Or I shouldn't say sixth son, but sixth child. Um, mm-hmm. But yeah, the uh, the career of Cody Schrader was a legendary one. No doubt about it. Um, one of the fun fun stories to follow this year in all of college football. Oh, I will say this too. Um, because all this stuff is kind of happening now with the portal and everything, you know, universities have spent, what, two or three years now getting everything lined up for this next season. And here you are. You know, wherever your program is at, that's where you're at. And we probably can go into that more in the future in the offseason. But if you look at Lane Kiffin, if you look at Drink and where they are right now, they're in a great place to work the transfer portal with the NIL rules up there in Mizzou and the way Kevin's killing the portal. And, and so it's like, it's like freeze, right? It's like right now, whatever this new thing is going to be, you are going to be breaking in the door and you're going to be have a first shot at it. And it's not going to be, you know, wrong or unsteady ground like so many teams are on. So yeah, this is probably one of the most crucial seasons to be a competent team in as well, probably ever, honestly. Yeah. Like I said, Ole Miss and Mizzou might have fewer questions than Ohio state right now. Oh yeah. Here's that sounds weird as that sounds but that's that's where we are uh i've been promoting betting the bulls a lot if you have not somehow listened to those episodes you absolutely should the final episode of betting the bulls preview the national championship that is already out you can listen to it on our youtube channel as well started on south on youtube great great insights if you're getting any sort of action on, on this game you want props over under spread money line what live betting whatever your jam is we, we had it covered a lot of great, great content in there. I'm very biased. I know when I say that, but um, maybe you can listen to it as well. If you've already subscribed to this channel, which you should absolutely be subscribed to the Saturday Down South podcast, leave us a five-star review, subscribe to our YouTube channel as well, where you can watch every episode of the Saturday Down South podcast, which is presented by Texas Pete, 
Follow us on the app, formerly known as Twitter, at the SDS Pod, at Setdown South, at CJO Guerra, at Go So Hard. Thanks, guys. Talk soon.